Um, so as I said, we've been moving, we were moving from the wisdom basket to really the basket of, of action or conduct or enacting the Dharma. What does that look like? And the Buddha's teaching is very interesting. You know, it's not just, I mean, there's the wisdom basket and realizing the nirvana, nirvana, but then a lot of the teaching is very down to earth. The, 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 the sila basket of right speech, right action, right livelihood, this is, this is more nuts and bolts. This is not uh, esoteric or mystical in some way. This is his commonsensical teachings. And, they're, and, and often they're undervalued because they're so commonsensical. But for the Buddha, they are equally important in the, four, in the Eightfold Noble uh, Path. And it's often considered that the basket of sila, which is translated as morality or ethics or virtue, which is the word I like, uh, is considered the foundation of the path. It's the ground. And basically the idea here is you can't really practice without some grounding in ethical conduct. That there's just too much suffering otherwise. There's too much um, mental proliferation. There's too much agitation in the heart and mind unless we begin to align our lives with the Dharma. Remember in the very first talk, which was quite a while ago now, which was an overview of the path, I talked about the word right, right action, right speech, right livelihood. Right means to bring into accord with the truth, to bring into accord with the Dharma, to bring into harmony with the teachings of the Buddha. And so we talked about speech in terms of bringing our speech in accord with the Dharma. And this week we're going to talk a little about action what's called right action in Buddhism. The Buddha was, um, for those of you who don't know, the Buddha was also a poet. And a lot of his teachings, there's a whole book called the, the, the Book of Inspired Utterances. And there'll be all these teachings, and each teaching ends with a poem. Or the Dhammapada, which is one of the most beloved books by Buddhist cultures, is a, mostly a book of poetry, of teaching through poetry. And so here's, the, here's the, the poem, one of the poems about virtue. He said, the perfume, the perfume, the scent of sandalwood, rose bay, or jasmine cannot travel against the wind. But the fragrance of virtue travels as far as the ends of the world. But the fra fragrance of virtue travels as far as the ends of the world. Like garlands woven from a heap of flowers, fashion your life from many good deeds. So the first 
piece I would like to talk about is just about virtue itself, the word virtue, which I, I really like and is not, not so appreciated these days or not used so much or we don't, you know, nobody goes around saying, oh, he's really virtuous today or isn't he cool? He was virtuous guy or, you know, or that person has a lot of virtue, they're really hot. You know, it's, I mean, that's, it's not, it doesn't, you know, it's not, um, it's not held in high regard. And it's not that it's actually denigrated so much, it's actually not thought about much. We don't give a lot of thought to it, the word's not in common use. And I like the word because the word, uh, which has the same root as virility, uh, Inherent in the word, it implies a certain power. And it's the power of ethical conduct. It's the power of uh, action that's in alignment with the Dharma. It's the power that um, we can see with people of integrity, who live their integrity, who walk their talk. And so, if you look up the word virtue in the dictionary, it means the power or operative influence inherent in a supernatural or divine being or an embodiment of that power, of such power, a life that expresses that power and realization. That last part was added on by me. Um, It has to do with the shaping or an infusion of life and conduct with ethical principles. And, you know, most people are, you know, pretty good. Most people probably who come here are pretty good with ethical conduct. Not perfect, probably. You could just kind of start to catalog, you know, in your mind you know, where, where you're in alignment, in alignment. And, well, here, let me, let me back up one step. Right action, like as we've moved to the sila basket, we first worked with right speech. Right speech is one of the five training precepts, five precepts of ethical conduct in Buddhism that Buddhist followers are asked to live by. And if if you don't live by them, I don't know, I don't know, it's, it's kind of hard to call yourself a Buddhist. It's actually, whether you call yourself a Buddhist or not, it's hard to practice Buddhism. Because these ways of living begin to clarify or purify the heart and mind that then set the stage for the deeper possibility of understanding, realization, enlightenment, freedom. And so the five, the, in, in the right action limb of the path, they, it's emphasized not to kill, not to steal, not to misuse sexuality. In the right speech, you've already got that precept. And so a little bit tonight, I want to just talk about the five precepts because I think they're worth talking about here, and then a little bit broader in terms of action. And the five precepts are basically not to kill, not to steal, not to misuse sexuality, not to misuse speech, 
not to delude the heart and mind with alcohol and drugs. And they're, as I said, they're, they're, these are pretty commonsensical, right? Don't, don't go killing anybody, right? If that's not a, you know, that's not a, you know, a kind of, you know, mystical, esoteric understanding. This is a basic human understanding if we want to live together. And then it, there's a broader understanding about not killing because it's really about not killing any living being. It's about not killing life. And so life in any form is revered. So there's, and remember with the precepts you'll get both the negative and the positive, right? Abstain from killing, but abstaining from killing means to revere life, to appreciate life, to love life in all its forms. And of course we can, as we, the, the precepts are on many, many levels three important ones to acknowledge. On one level, the for usually the first level people hear them is they're prescriptive, right? Don't do this. Don't kill. Don't steal. Don't misuse sexuality. Don't misuse speech. Don't misuse drugs, alcohol. And, you know, and that's a very basic level. And if you don't know that, then it's good to hear it that way. If you actually don't know you shouldn't kill, really good to hear that. If you don't know it's, it's not good to steal, then that's a really good teaching, just on the basic prescriptive level. Then there's a second level, maybe another octave of, of the precepts, and they're practices. In other words, they're, they're alive. They're not just prescriptive. They need to be lived very fully. They need to be uh, uh, you know, there may be times when some of it doesn't work for some reason or another. You know, and people have to deal with all kinds of complicated situations just about life, right? I don't know if, you know, I, uh, you know people's house is overrun with termites and the termites are destroying the house. What do you do? Okay, if you're just very pure, you know, your house falls down. You know, it's not, doesn't work so well. So then how to live the precepts, they become a living, living precepts. Or not to kill, not only doesn't mean don't kill human beings or don't kill other beings, well what about killing our spirit in some way, shape, or form, or the life force that's in us? And, you know, and then we can see how that might happen with drugs and alcohol or with misuse of sexuality or maybe killing time. You know, time is so precious. What are we actually doing with our time? So this way, there's a whole other level of them as very alive practices. Sexuality, you know, when I, when I did maybe one of my first teachings about sexuality here in San Francisco, I think the first question was, I remember who it was to this young woman, she raised her hand, well, a friend of mine, you know, is into S&M. So what is, you know, what's the precept around that in terms of non-harming? Because all the precepts are under the greater heading of non-harming. How would you answer? Pardon? 
it's in its con consensus. Consensual, yeah. It's, thank you. Well, it's got to be consensus too, right? <laughs> thank you. Right, but if but if pain's giving somebody pleasure, is it harming? Right. I mean, you know. So all I'm all I'm trying to open up here is the idea that the the precepts at some point become practices, and then there may be an even another octave where the precepts become an expression of the other parts of the path, of the contemplative parts of the path and the wisdom parts of the path, that at a certain level of understanding, at a certain level of realization, maybe there's no impulse to steal, no impulse to kill, no impulse to misuse sexuality or speech or drugs, that actually they're an expression of awakening at a certain level of practice. And so I just want you to consider those in terms of possibility and that the deepest possibility is really that the precepts are an expression of wisdom and compassion in action, actualized, realized, made manifest. And there the whole question of prescription of, you know, oh, you should do this, that totally falls away. It's not some, somebody from outside, some, the Buddha saying, oh, you're supposed to do this. No, it's the heart. When it's free, it's just not even a question of stealing or of hurting somebody sexually or oneself sexually. And so the precepts have this positive side that they, they, it's not only abstaining from killing, there's a reverence for life. It's not only abstaining from stealing, but there's a, a sense of generosity is what's present. Or that the sense of responsibility in terms of our powers and the power of speech and the power of, of uh, sexuality and the power of drugs and alcohol, that we learn how to be responsible. We appreciate the power of our words or we, we understand that maybe at a certain point we begin to see drugs and alcohol don't bring the true nourishment we seek. That there is, there is something we're seeking when we seek to get high, but it's not going to be found in drugs and alcohol. That there's something deeper than that. There's something more true in what we seek if we can begin to clarify our understanding and our vision. And then we can begin to find the freedom we seek, the happiness we seek, the well-being we seek, often through drugs and alcohol. And so, so the precepts become a, a pure expression of wisdom and of compassion. And you know, in, in Buddhism there's a lot of bowing, we put our hands together, gasho, and the, the, the action is an expression of wisdom and compassion coming together. And you start to have, with that unity, with that unification of wisdom and compassion, there's harmony. And so the right action is an expression both uh, of harmony 
and the movement towards harmony. And I'll read you from uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi. He talks about harmony, and harmony is a beautiful way to think about right action. Action that creates harmony for ourselves, for others, for the world. And it's, I like the word a lot also because, you know, people love harmony. When we, you hear a beautiful piece of music, whatever the style might be, when the harmony is beautiful, it touches people, it moves us. And harmony has to do with accord or peace or peacefulness or friendship or fellowship or understanding or consensus or unity or empathy, uh, union, oneness. It's a beautiful word. Bhikkhu Bodhi, he said, the English word morality and its derivatives suggests the sense of obligation and constraint quite foreign to the Buddhist concept of sila. This connotation probably comes from the theistic background uh, to Western ethics. Buddhism, with its non-theistic framework, grounds its ethics not in the notion of obedience, but on that of harmony. In the fact, in fact, the commentaries. Oh no, you don't need to hear that. Um, the observance of sila leads to harmony at several levels: social, psychological, karmic, and contemplative. So this is again the power of virtue, that it leads to harmony on all these different levels: so the social level, that how we live together with one another. I mean, really, it would, it would be a very interesting world to have one day of people living by the five precepts. I mean, that would just be a radically different world. No killing, no stealing, no misuse of sexuality. I mean, just those three. So much suffering. Those three. And then, of course, not right speech, not misusing drugs or alcohol. I mean, so much suffering would evaporate with just the five precepts, just living together and socially together. Our lives as human beings together would, would radically change. He says, at the social level, the principles of sila help to establish harmonious interpersonal relations, welding the mass of differently uh, differently constituted members of society with their own private interests and goals into a cohesive social order in which conflict, if not utterly eliminated, is at least reduced. And then uh, he talks about the psychological level, that just within our own minds, the, the, the mind can relax if we're living within the contours of right action. The heart can relax. There's no regret. There's no remorse. There's no self-flagellation. There's no, you know, we don't have to feel bad if we're not lying, not stealing, not hurting, not acting inappropriately. And again, the, the appropriateness is not really a rigid mechanical uh, uh, appropriate, it's an appropriateness based on the other factors of the path, of being present, of being awake, of being mindful, of seeing what's needed in this moment. 
And if somebody's suffering, then what's needed is compassion. If we're suffering, what's needed is compassion. The appropriate response comes out of our being present, not really out of some list of this is what we should do. In some way, we could say that there's the first level is this prescriptive right action, but the deepest level is some kind of organic or true conscience that's not based on judgment and superego and right, or it's really based on what's appropriate, what's right action, what's action that's in line with the Dharma, with the truth. And so for us to begin to live in this way, it really protects our own heart and mind. And then, of course, the principle of karma, that we have some power in how things unfold. We don't have control. Karma doesn't mean we have control. It means we have input. And input is based on our words and thoughts and deeds. And the most powerful of our karmic uh, capacities is in our action. And, you know, thoughts have a certain karmic power, but it's a lot, lot less than our words. Our words have more karmic power, but it's still a lot less than our actions. And we, we get to have some input in our own karma, in how life unfolds. And, of course, you know, the contemplative level it's very hard to meditate if you spend a day killing and stealing. Just lying. It really doesn't work. I'll tell you, I had a friend, a good friend, who was, um, you know, a, a drug dealer. And he wasn't, you know, nothing too bad. He was stealing pot. And he talked to me once about his, he went on a retreat, he went on a three-week retreat and uh, he said he had a really good retreat. And right at the end of the retreat, this 80 pounds of pot came into his mind that was sitting in his closet. And he said all he could do at that point was think about the pot. And he said he, and it was, there was some problem. He'd had a scene with somebody. So, right, it's not just, oh, the pot's sitting there. Then there's all the stuff around it with the people he bought it from and... And he said for three days, that's all he could think about. And he went home, and he got rid of it. He gave the pot back, or he sent it back, or whatever he did with the pot. And that, that was the end. And he said after that, he never had that kind of... R rumin what's it called? Rumination. Rumination, thank you. I, have, I don't have a mind much tonight. You know, it's hard if you've... And even if you've just had a big fight with somebody and you go to meditate, what are you doing most of that meditation, right? Ruminating over and over again. So when we begin to live a life of harmlessness, it supports the meditative process. It's part of the purification of heart and mind. Let's see, where'd I go? What time is it? 
So, and we talked a little, and this is where the Eightfold Path gets kind of holographic. Even in right intention, one of the intentions is towards harmlessness. Is the, the bliss of, and then with it comes what's called the bliss of blamelessness. And again, in the, from the Buddha, he said, all beings tremble before violence, all fear death, all love life. See yourself in others, then whom can you hurt? What harm can you do? And this, this, priest, this attitude is really, as far as I can tell, common to all religions. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And it's in Buddhism also. And it's, it's really part of the empathic quality needed for ethical conduct. It's actually, if you're so, sociopathic, it's hard to be ethical. If you can't put yourself in someone else's shoes and kind of consider their situation, what's happened to them, what has their life been like, then it's hard to be it's hard to be sensitive to the suffering of others. So part of what we're asked to do, and this is called, there's mindfulness internal and mindfulness external in the teachings on mindfulness, is to actually be able to sense or feel or intuit or um, uh, be aware of the suffering of others so that we can begin to act appropriately and to begin to see nobody wants to suffer. Even this little ant who's on my paper. It's true. And you know, we don't, we don't know, know it so much. It's very interesting. I'm just having a memory of my first long retreat, a six-week retreat. And um, you know, you take the precepts when you go on retreat. And, you know, it's mostly easy to keep the precepts but I remember doing the walking meditation outside and the little creatures, you know, I mean, this is a little hokey, I have to say, it's a little hokey, but it's true. The little creatures become your friends. And not only become your friends, you just see their life. They're just life. And actually, after six weeks of just walking back and forth, sitting, walking, sitting, walking, sitting, walking, you just feel like a little creature. You don't, there's not much of you left, right? <laughs> and so, and you just see, and especially, you know, I was practicing in Massachusetts and it was beautiful and outdoors, and you're just outdoors under the sun, under the sky, under the rain, just like all the creatures. And in some sense, even the, the practice of not harming really all life, you can start to feel yourself as part of the life that's here instead of the kind of hubris that we take for ourselves as human beings as we're the, the best life, you know, we're the supreme life. I mean, we're, we're definitely an interesting manifestation of life. But really, when, when you're present, when you're really present at a certain level, all life is pretty amazing caterpillars, butterflies. You know, I was in Africa this year, the, cro the, the crocodiles or the baboons or the hyenas or the giraffes or the zebras or the, the rhinos or the lions or the elephants. I mean, 
it's an amazing world. It's an amazing manifestation of life, right? Or even, you know, just in Marin, the deer and the turkeys and the, um, what do you call them? The coyotes, beautiful coyotes, just, just over the bridge. Actually, some in the Presidio. So the odd, the way that it works is that as we get more present, we actually get more sensitive or more empathic, more able to see the life that's here, the suffering of life and the beauty of life that we share, that we're part of. <clears throat> Nisargadatta, one of the great Hindu saints of the last century, he said, harmlessness is the most powerful form of yoga and will take you speedily to your goal. This is what I call the natural yoga. It is the art of living in peace and harmony and friendliness and love. And so at a certain level, the, the precepts are just an expression of love, of our heart, of our freedom. Let's go. This is from Sharon Salzberg. She said, a way to discover intimacy with ourselves and all of life is to live with integrity. A way to discover intimacy with ourselves and all of life is to live with integrity, basing our lives on a vision of compassionate non-harming. When we dedicate ourselves to actions that do not hurt ourselves or others, our lives become all of a piece, a seamless garment with nothing separate or disconnection disconnected in the spiritual reality we discover. In order to do this, in order to live with integrity, we must stop fragmenting and compartmentalizing our lives. Telling lies at work and then expecting great truths in meditation is nonsensical. Using our sexual energy in a way that harms ourselves or others and then expecting to know transcendent love in another area is mindless. Every aspect of our lives is connected to every other aspect of our lives. Every aspect of our lives is connected to every other aspect of our lives. The tendency to split, to fragment, to compartmentalize is dukkha, is suffering. That separation is not true. <clears throat> I'm, this is my commentary here, sorry. Um, Every aspect of our lives is connected to every other aspect of our lives. This truth is the basis for an awakened life. So what I'd like to do, what I'd like to ask you to do, what I'd like us to do today is take the precepts and then work with them for a week. And then we'll come back next week and we'll talk about the precepts, including right driving. And I'll give the precepts in a really basic traditional form, but I want you to hear some, something else. I want you to hear a more kind of creative precepts that uh, Sean Fight uh, and Sarah, his uh, husband and wife, that they took for their marriage. And I don't think they're here today. 
but they, they, they reinterpreted the precepts, and I think it's worth hearing. And they, um, you'll hear, it's a poem and then the five precepts. And the precepts that we'll take, and af- we'll do it after I read this, again, are not to, ki- to abstain from killing, from stealing, misusing sexuality, speech, and drugs and alcohol. And so for their marriage, they, they wrote this, spoke this, and it's a beautiful understanding of the non-separateness that Sharon Salzberg was just pointing us at. As the whole of the all is all right here, the whole, W-H-O-L-E, the whole, completeness, the whole of the all is all right here, and we move in a circle that never began and has no in, nor out, nor in between. It is all as we are. We, not even only us, because there's just the one great this here, now, still, on this green grass, on this great ridge, with these bright souls, hearts and eyes each, here we see we're lovers, in and with each other, and it all, and promise, as our human hearts can only try to move in wisdom on this earth, our love, the compass, and true Dharma eye. And uh, if you do a traditional, especially Zen Buddhist wedding, you don't actually take traditional marriage vows. You take the precepts, and that's how you wed. And you take the precepts, and then you acknowledge them, something like this, uh, um, eye to eye, heart to heart, body to body, true nature to true nature. And so then they, they, they interpreted the precepts like this, Sean and Sarah. To hold each life a breathing sacred song, not to be destroyed for any cause. To live as simply as we can in a world drunk, drunk on things, taking only what is clearly given. To give and know our bodies in the whirling dance of sexual life with sky-bright wisdom, honesty, and love. To speak the truth, to live in language well, our words, could somebody shut the door, please? To speak the truth, to live in language well, our words a gift to all of trust and comfort on the path. And to nourish wisely these soft animals, our bodies, consuming that which leads to clarity of mind and liberation. And this is another interpretation of the five precepts. As the elders in our line have taught us, so will with these five precepts our God, offering our actions as a gift of utter safety to all beings. Isn't that beautiful? So let's take the precepts, and by take the precepts, It's up to you. No, there's no forcing. Nobody here has to take the precepts or do anything weird or we're not a cult or anything. But it really, when I think about taking the precepts, it means sitting and letting the, the life, the goodwill, the good wish, and the integrity of that precept live in my heart. And, so, and then to see what it means for you. 
and to take it for a week as a practice. And actually the precepts are often taken this way and you don't, I'll just say them and you can contemplate them for a moment or two and then I'll say the next one and you contemplate them and that's how you'll take them. Well, let, me, let me think if that's the best way. Now let's do it out loud together. We'll do it this way. We'll do a call and response. It is something about enworlding the precept with our voices. And so, and again, you don't have to do this if you don't want to, but for those of you who want to, we'll take the precepts. And I'll, I'll do a call and response. Uh, for the purpose of training, for the purpose of training, I vow to abstain from taking life. For the purpose of training, I vow not to take what has not been given. I vow not to take what has not been given. For the purpose of training, sorry, let's try it again. For the purpose of training, I vow to not misuse sexuality. I vow not to misuse sexuality. For the purpose of training, I vow not to misuse speech. I vow not to misuse speech. For the purpose of training, I vow not to misuse drugs and alcohol. And now, now we'll do it a little bit more contemplatively. I'll just read, I'll read Sean and Sarah's version and just, just hold it in your heart and mind for a moment. To hold each life a breathing sacred song, not to be destroyed for any cause. To live as simply as we can in a world drunk on things, taking only what is clearly given. To give and know our bodies in the whirling dance of sexual life with sky bright wisdom, honesty, and love. To speak the truth, to live in language well, our words a gift to all of trust and comfort on the path. To nourish wisely these soft animals, our bodies, consuming that which leads to clarity of mind and liberation. As the elders in our line have taught us, so we'll live with these five precepts as our guide, offering our actions as a gift of utter safety to all beings.
So we'll practice with these for a week and then let's see what happens. See, pay attention. See if you rebel against them and go out and get stoned tonight or we'll see what happens. <laughs> they're, they're alive. See, you know, they're, they're an opportunity for mindfulness. They're an opportunity to pay attention both externally and internally. Let's see how they live in you for this week. And then next week we'll just, there'll be no talk. We'll do a discussion and see what happened for people. Let's sit for another minute and then we'll end. <laughs> 